Welcome to the Ruby Book Club podcast, where we read an hour of a Ruby book each week and dissect it with you. I'm Saran, developer and founder of Code Newbie. I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. So we're currently reading Confident Ruby by Avdi Grimm. Today we're going to discuss sections 4.22 and 4.23, which cover yielding a parameter builder object and receiving policies instead of data. So remember that you can follow us on Twitter at Ruby Book Club and check out rubybookclub.com to follow along. So what did you think of this week's two sections? Interesting, quite different to some of the other readings we've done. There were two concepts that I weren't so familiar with this time, and particularly the second chapter that we're going to look at about receiving policies instead of data. But it was interesting finding out about them, and it was a good opportunity to learn more about blocks and procs and things like that that's in, that, that are in Ruby, so I, I enjoyed that. So you know how our rule is that we read only an hour a week, just so we can make sure we're consistent and you know it doesn't become this huge weekly burden that we have to do? Mm-hmm. This section, like each section for me, could have used its own hour. Like these were the two sections that I wish... I, you know, I read each one once, but mm-hmm. I would have loved to read them again because I, I felt, I think it was a combination of things. It was a combination, like you said, of different concepts coming into play that I wasn't very familiar with. And then looking at like lambdas and procs, which I don't really use that often. And then the fact that when Avdi explains a concept, he does this thing where he iterates you know, in really, really small steps, which most of the time I really, really like. But keeping up with all the little iterations and then also balancing the definitions and concepts I wasn't familiar with and seeing code that I wasn't used to seeing, it was just all just a little too much to digest in the one hour that we had. Yeah, there was definitely a lot of meat there to go and dig into. I agree with you. So we are going to attempt to unpack <laughs> 4.22. I'm going to tell you right now, this might be a little bit uh, painful for me, but we're going to do it and we're going <laughs> to learn and I'm excited to get started. Woo, let's go. So in yield a parameter builder object, we're looking at how we can bundle parameters that we pass into methods into objects, which have behaviors and methods on them. And it's this idea where By using a builder-based interface, we can have an API or a front end that's easier to use rather than having to deal with knowledge of many different classes. And that helps us to make more, like easier changes if we need to change our code. And we have a stable API on the front that people can interact with, with confidence. Yes. And so my understanding of kind of the big takeaway, the thing that we're trying to do is to separate the API of how to use the thing from how it's actually implemented and kind of creating a layer of abstraction between the two so that we can change the the inner workings of it. We can modify it, but we don't have to do as much work on our API to make sure that it still is in sync with the changes that we made. So it's that separation that I, I got out of this section. Is that what you got yeah. to? Yeah, okay. yeah, that's the main, that's the main thing. So the example that we're looking at in this chapter draws on the point class that we've been looking at in previous chapters, 
the point API where you can draw points on a map. And we've looked at specializations in previous chapters where you could have a starred point if you wanted to put plot a star on the map to mark a point of interest. And we also had the concept of a fuzzy point where you the, lo- the exact location of the place in question is not known with certainty. And so you draw, draw a circle around the likely area of that section. So we went from these optional attributes to using this class itself, which is nice, right? Because it brings all the attributes together under one umbrella and it's more object-oriented and kind of passing in just naked integers all over the place. But as Avdi points out, now if I'm coming in as a coder trying to use this interface, I have to know about a fuzzy point and I have to know about potentially other types of points like a starred point and who knows how many other points we might create in the future. So that is the the problem, right? I Because I changed the implementation of how the points are created and structured, my API also changes basically in sync, like in parallel. And so we're trying to create some type of separation so that I can make these modifications and add these different types of points, but my interface is still roughly the same. Yes. And he also talks about how we can add extra bits of configuration to the point class if we wanted. So for example, if you wanted to add this idea of a magnitude, so how big is the circle that you draw on the map, then you might want to pass a magnitude option as well, which can be an integer value from 1 to 20. And so combined with these configuration options and these different other classes that we can call on, the fuzzy point, the starred point, it's going to be hard for client developers to, to to keep all this stuff in their heads, as you said. And so how can we give them a more convenient API to work with? Yes. So the first thing that we're going to look at is the draw point method, because in all the examples, I feel like we've used this point concept across a few different sections at this point, <laughs> at this point. So one of the first things that we do is we have to actually draw the point. So what Avdi does is he takes that draw point method and he breaks it out into two methods. One is called draw point and the other is called draw starred point. So this is the first thing that I looked at and said, wait, what exactly is going on? Because in the draw point method, we take in two arguments. We take in point or x, and then we take in y with a default value of symbol y not set in draw point. And so that one I remember because it was using symbols to give better error messages, which we covered in an earlier section. So familiar territory, sort of excited about that. But the part that threw me off was the point or x and then having the default y. And so in the next line in that method, it says point equals point or x is a integer. So we're doing a type check. And if it is an integer, then we're going to make a new point object passing in the point or x value and the y value. And if it is not an integer, then we're going to just set it to point or x. So either way, we come out with point, which is going to be a point object. So from there, we call draw on self on that point object. And that is the end of draw point. And then the next one is draw starred point. And really that ends up just being a wrapper for draw point, except that this time, instead of passing in just the straight x or y value, we're actually passing in a starred point object dot new. So we can see here that the starred point stuff is kind of hidden, is kind of abstracted away into this draw starred point method. Yes, and the main takeaway for the point or x first argument is that you could pass in either a point class already 
or you could pass in XY coordinates. Yes. So that API gives you the ability to, to be flexible and do that. Yes. And I think that was the thing that if I, I feel like if I wrote this method and I came to that conclusion, it would feel very wrong. And I'm trying to, you know, as I was reading this, I was trying to grapple with why does it not feel right? Like, why does it feel wrong to be able to handle an integer, but also an object? Like, those two, do you know what I mean? Like, those two aren't, they're very different. And so being able to just kind of take in whatever, I don't know, it feels, it just doesn't feel right to me. Did you get that feeling at all? Well, I wonder whether that comes from it being not so easy to read first time. And so therefore it felt wrong because when I, I had to read this a couple of times myself just to check what was going on, the point or X thing was, it made it difficult to read. So you're saying point or X is an integer and you've got to keep in your mind that, right, this could be a point or this could be an integer because it is one half of a set of coordinates. Mm -hmm. And then, like you said, it also had that default symbol. So there's a lot to, and then it has a ternary operator in the middle. And so there was a few different concepts flying around in there. And that can make it seem a bit jarring. But once I once I got to the bottom of it and saw, aha, this is an API that you can pass in a point, but you could also pass in XY coordinates, it made sense to me because I thought if you've got a method called draw point, you should be able to give it a, uh, either a point or something from which you can construct a point. That, that's mm. the information that you need to be able to draw a point. And so the API, the flexibility there makes sense. And I just think the readability was a bit funny and that's what can make it not feel right and also what would make me think I wouldn't I probably wouldn't even think to write a method that way mm -hmm. as well you know what I think it's it's what you said about it being an API because when you when you frame it that way when you say well as an API I should you know as a developer not having written the code base coming into the code base I should be able to give it some xy stuff and I should be able to give it an actual point so from that perspective that makes a lot of sense i think if this were not an api and it was just code that i was writing that would interact with my other code and i was the only person on it i think i would i think that would feel not it would feel icky but as an api in that usage i think it makes more sense yeah so now avdi shows us how you the, the various ways that you can call this draw point method on a map so you can say map.drawpoint with seven and nine or map.drawpoint with point.new and he says that now if a client programmer comes along they can easily interact with this draw point method and not have to worry so much they don't have to know have any knowledge of the point class family they can just call draw point or draw start point however it doesn't help with the extra configuration. Like how does a client developer set the magnitude of the point and other other options that they may want to? And this is where Avdi introduces this idea of yielding the parameter before use. So how often do you use yield in your code? Uh, there are a few occasions where I will pass a block to a method call and then want to execute that at some point, particularly with errors or things like that if I think about it it's not so rare I don't do it all the time but I have definitely done it a few times with Theo you I I don't remember the last time that I did and I was really glad about this chapter because it's one of those things where I, I've always said to myself I feel like I should be using yield somewhere for some reason at some point and this gave me a perfect opportunity to start thinking in that way and to start using that and adding that to my tool set so I was really happy to to have yield introduced as a solution 
Yeah, now you say it, I don't think specifically yield, but using blocks and things mm-hmm. like that yeah. we use quite regularly. But I guess not in the... Yeah, you're probably right. I, not as often using that yield call. And so it was good to refresh that. Mm-hmm. And so when we're talking about yield, we're talking about using that as a way to empower the developer, right? Empower the person who is using your code and using your API and saying that they might want to add things like a magnitude to that point. They might want to give that point a name. They might want to do other kinds of things that work very well with the point class uh, and they might want to configure it their own way. So by having yield, we are able to add that level of flexibility and give the developer using the API some, some say in how things work. Right, so we look at calling that draw point method again, but this time we add a block on the end. So we say do point, and inside the block we say something like point dot magnitude equals three. And so we've we've drawn the initial point, and then we can customize it. And this gives that client developer, like you said, a lot more power to to play with the object before it is used. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that really changes as far as our map class and our draw point method is that after we set that point value to being either with that thing where we have the ternary operator and we take in either the integer or the point and we end up with the point object, right after that, we do the yield. So we'll yield point if the block is given, and then we'll have point called draw on. And so having that yield block actually modifies our code not very much in terms of where we were with the draw point method. So it's a pretty easy implementation so far. So the thing that I don't think I've ever seen before, Nadia, I'm curious if you've seen it before this sample, is the and argument? Yes, that I've seen many times. Okay, tell me about that. So that's just a way of passing a block as an argument to a method, and it just indicates that that's a block. It looks really pretty. I really like it. (laughs) I was like, oh, it starts with an and. It's almost like it wants to be friends with the other arguments. You know, it's like you and me. You know, it's nice. Yeah, so it's just a way of saying this is a block argument and it can be executed at some point in the method. So then Avdi says something that I'm not sure I fully understand, or at least I I can't point to where it is. He says that one of the great things about doing it this way instead of passing in all these options is that this way callers have access to the original values of point attributes. Does he mean the integers, like the XY court integers? Well, it could be that, but it could also mean things like so... A point may have a default magnitude set, set like one, and you can say, I want to double whatever the default magnitude is. So you can say point dot magnitude star equals two, and then you're going to get double the default magnitude. So you can play with those original values or, or mm-hmm. default attributes in order to get cleverer customizations. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. So you're not just setting things like so if it were a hash you would just say you know 20 or whatever it is but this way you get to actually play with the existing attributes and modify them and and do fun stuff yeah exactly and there's one other benefit that we get from this and that's that we could get more specific error messages in the stack trace in that we are more likely to be able to get to the point 
of contention. So if we are trying to set an invalid value on the magnitude at the in the block, we will know exactly where the failure happens because on the line where we say, we'll set the magnitude to this, it will point us right to that line in the stack trace. And so rather than having to dig deep into where in the options hash has this gone wrong, we're more likely to get better validation when we're looking at at the what, the customizations that we've done within a block. So one of the concepts that we've talked about a couple times is around the error messages. And it's about figuring out what they say and how helpful they are. And I, I guess that error messages were one of those things that I always thought I just kind of had to deal with in whatever format it was given to me. Like I remember in maybe it was a few sections ago, we were talking about the nil, the no method, um, was it the, the no method error on nil? And that's obviously an error I think we're all very familiar with. And it just never occurred to me that I could write my code and do certain things so that I didn't encounter that error. Do you know what I mean? Like being able to kind of have control over your errors that way is, is so empowering. Yeah, and there's been a theme throughout this book of here's how you can get more helpful error messages and here's yeah. how you can display your error messages or make them more meaningful and there's been quite a few of those and yeah like you say you sometimes think ah, I'll just have to wait till I get an error and then hopefully that will help me fix whatever's broken right, but right. really you could do you have a lot in your power to dictate how you get errors where you get errors how you log them and it's a really useful tool at your disposal to help speed up any de- debugging that you have to do mm-hmm. and the way that Avdi approaches it it sounds like He's always asking that question in the back of his mind, right? He's kind of, I feel like almost every section now it's been, and then when we get an error, this is what we'll see. How can we make it better? And so this is a good lesson for me to start thinking about that too, right? To not just code assuming that everything's going to work out and, you know, as long as I have tests, I'm good, but thinking about, okay, if this does go wrong, how will I know and how will I fix it? And having that question in the back of my mind as I build, I think would help me build better stuff and be less frustrated later on when I get an error. It's interesting you say that point about this must be at the back of Avdi's mind all the time. And I found that when working with Theo as well, we'll have done something and then he'll say, so what can we do? And how can we improve this when it comes to refactoring? And I sometimes just think, okay, uh, is there much repetition here? Or is there any concept we can pull out? And sometimes he might say, well, can we get a more helpful error message? Or he'll say, is there a more performant way that we can do this? There are a few questions that he's always asking that I just don't think about or I used to not think about and I'm getting better at now and I guess that comes with experience and having suffered some different forms of pain in the past whether that's <laughs> hours trying to get to the bottom of something or something being really slow and being very like resource heavy and so that's why at the back of these more experienced programmers minds it's always certain questions like we have a bit more control over how we customize this error and how can we make this not go through every single item in the array but get to where we want it to get to more quickly. So I think with time as we do, we see more things and we build more things, we'll start to have this tool set of considerations that we look at as we as we go through the feedback cycle of, of red, green, refactor. So one of the things that I really appreciate when Avdi does is he'll bring up a real-life gem or tool or code base, something that usually we're pretty familiar with that we've at least seen before as a way to illustrate how to use the concept 
that we're talking about, or, or better yet, to show us that we've been using the concept that we've talked about in that section. And so he talks about the net HTTP versus Faraday. And that section made me go, oh, yeah, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Anytime we do any type of configuration using a gem like Faraday, we usually pass in a block, and that block modifies some aspect of the thing that we're doing. So in the Faraday example, he talks about, or he shows an example of how to configure the um, the request and how you modify the headers before you actually send the request. And that's a very common thing in most of the gems that we use that require some type of configuration. And he contrasts that with the way NetHttp does it. And the setup and the process for NetHttp is definitely longer. I think it takes a total of six lines compared to Faraday's four lines. But the thing that Avdi points out as a big difference between how NetHttp does it and how Faraday does it is that in NetHttp, you not only have to know about net colon colon HTTP, but you also have to know about net colon colon HTTP colon colon get, which is a whole new constant. And that's kind of the the big theme of this section is how much should a developer know about how your API works to work with your API. And so in NetHttp, you have to know about this constant with this, um, you know, this NetHttp get class, whereas Faraday, you just have to know about Faraday. And if you had to guess that any object exists in the Faraday gem, it's probably going to be Faraday. Yeah, that was a nicely summarized point. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) Now, there's one last case to look at when we're talking about the blocks and the customization. And that's about replacing the object returned with a new type of object. And so Avdi says, right, so what if we we return the point and now we want to add a fuzziness radius? Well, we have a fuzzy point class. So how do we get that into this setup? How do we make a point a fuzzy point? And this is where we introduce a builder. Yes. And this was the part where I said, wait, what's happening exactly? What's going on? (laughs) Um, So, yes. So first of all, I love this idea of a builder because I instantly think of something that's going to gather all the resources and put something together in a nice little package and give it to me. So it sounds organized. It sounds clean. It sounds compact and efficient. It reeks of productivity. So I was, I'm very excited <laughs> about this idea of a, a, a builder, of using a builder. The thing that gets me thrown off is when we talk about the wrappers and kind of what methods get called by which and what that was the part that kind of threw me off so i guess we should start just from the beginning of that class of the point builder class yeah so the point builder class inherits from simple delegator so this is something we've used before Mm -hmm. which is the class of the object that you pass in and initialized if that method is not defined within the class that you're currently dealing with it will delegate to those to that class so with the point builder if you initialize with a point any method you call on that object and if it's not defined in point builder it will defer to point so in the initialize we just do super on point so that will go straight to the point initialize method now the interesting bit is here where it looks at the fuzzy radius setter method so fuzzy radius equals and in here we call underscore underscore set object underscore underscore and we pass in fuzzy point dot new with the current point and also the fuzzy radius configuration 
So what this does here is it replaces the wrapped object with the type of object that you pass in. So what we're saying is take the point class that we're passing in and set it to a fuzzy point and it will return a fuzzy point instead of a point. And then there's another method called point, which is underscore underscore get object. And when I say object in both the set object and get object methods, it's obj. So we get obj underscore underscore. And this is how you access the wrapped object directly in a simple delegator. So you call point and it will give you back the point object. So I'm going to give you an example and tell me if I'm understanding the set obj and get obj and how they work. Cool. So let's say we have a new method in point builder. So right now we have the initialize method, we have the fuzzy radius setter, and we have a point method, mm -hmm. right? Let's add a new method and let's call it cookies because mm -hmm. I'm hungry. So <laughs> we have dev cookies and in dev cookies, the only thing we have is the get obj. So mm -hmm. the underscore, underscore, get obj, underscore, underscore. Okay. So if I use the point dot fuzzy radius, right? Mm -hmm. to set a fuzzy radius that will call the fuzzy radius setter in my point builder class right so far so good mm -hmm. then that set obj will replace the point that i have mm -hmm. and make it into a fuzzy point object mm -hmm. passing in the point and the fuzzy radius yes right okay so now i have this point and that point is a fuzzy point yes. right Okay, so now if I call point.cookies, that will go into my point builder's def cookies method. And because I have my get obj there, that get obj will look into my fuzzy point class, since my object is really a fuzzy point object, and see if there's a cookies method in fuzzy point. Is that right? I don't think so. Now, it might be saying the same thing, so let me, okay. just, let me say my version, okay, which so. is that based on your, you've got a point builder, you instantiate, you say pointbuilder.new, and you pass a point, and then you call, you, you've passed in a fuzzy radius, and so the fuzzy radius setter is called on that point builder, and so it it is now wrap, it's now, your point builder now wraps a fuzzy point instance. Yes. And then if you were to call point on the point builder, it will return to you your fuzzy point. So it's a way of accessing oh, okay. the, the object that has been okay. instantiated by your point builder. So it's not, okay, so in that sense, it's not, it's not delegating the method point to your fuzzy point. It's just getting back the fuzzy point. Yes. Understood. Okay. So how do we, so when we do the delegation part, that's when we just don't have a method defined at all. Yes. Yeah, so the simple delegator will, will just look. pass it through. Yes. Got it. Okay. Thank you, Madir. That was super helpful. Awesome. And then, so Avdi shows us how we can start to use this point builder now, which is we can say things like draw start point and pass it seven and nine, an X and Y coordinates then construct a block. And inside that block, we can say things like point.name is gold buried here. Ooh, and like point.magnitude point. is 15 and point.fuzzy radius is 50. And so what's going to go on behind the scenes is that 
we've got the customization on the new object. But when we call fuzzy radius, that's going to refer back to our point builder and set create a new fuzzy point object as we just discussed. So essentially by having a builder and using the block style of customizations, we can have a nice API for making points which have a lot of customization in them. And so it's much easier to deal with than having to worry about, oh, there's a starred point class and there's a fuzzy point class. You don't need to worry about that. That has been abstracted away within the, the point builder and within this other, this API of using a block for customization. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the end of that section, right? Before the conclusion? Yeah. So one of the things that Avdi says in the conclusion of the section is he talks about how this feels like a lot of work, which it does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm tired. Um, I'm tired reviewing the, <laughs> the section we just talked about. And that it feels like a lot of work to go through for the sake of making an API convenient. And there are other benefits, like we talked about the decoupling of the client code API from how the library actually works. Uh, and we talked about how... When you do things this way, it can streamline some potentially really, really awkward interfaces. Um, and it also talks about how we can we can totally change and rearrange the class structure without really needing to change the API. So we get a lot of flexibility. But he also notes that when we get that type of flexibility, it also means that we're obfuscating things, right? So how the code works and what's involved seems uh, or will be a lot less obvious. So there's always a, a trade-off there. I sort of noted or highlighted that section and I just asked myself and thought about it is this always the case and can't abstraction sometimes help with communication because sometimes I think that you can have a lot of complexity when you abstract away that can help you see what the key point is or what's the part that you're meant to care about and I don't have any concrete examples but part of me was like sometimes I'm sure it must help to communicate the key ideas rather than just make it vague or unclear. Well, that's interesting because I think that it depends on your interpretation of what are the key things to communicate, right? Mm-hmm. So it sounds like for you, the thing to communicate is the main concepts, the the point, kind of the, the mission you're on, the goal of what you're trying to right. accomplish. And in this context, what you're trying to do is make a point. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's the thing that matters. But to a different developer, it might be, well... The point is great, but I really want to understand like what are the types of points and how do they work and what and it's the implementation that I want better communicated to me. So I think abstraction can definitely clarify the message and the goal of the code, but part of that cost is potentially obfuscating the inner workings, which I think can then obfuscate the message. Do you know what I mean? Like they kind of, they can both kind of, you know, mess each other up yes. and cover things up. But I think that's the difference, right? Is as a developer, what do I care more about? The point of, I'm going to stop saying point, the message, the the goal of the code, or do I care more about how it reaches that goal? Yeah. Good point. Ah, point. <laughs> <laughs> So now we're moving on to 4.23, where we talk about receiving policies instead of data. So the situation that we're talking about is when we have a method and we have different edge cases, and there might be different ways that we want to handle those edge cases. And so one example that we talk about that we're going to use throughout the section is deleting files. And there might be a situation where we delete a file, but the file never existed, and we'll see that we might want to do even 
other things with the deleting file process. And so for that, instead of using data, we're going to use policies. And for policies, we're going to receive a block or proc, which will determine what the policy is for that specific use case. Right. So at this point, I saw block or proc and I thought to myself, the number of times I've read about what's a block versus a proc versus a lambda, come on, Nads, you can remember. But I had to go and do <laughs> some more research again just to confirm that I knew the difference. Are you clear on the difference? Of course I'm not clear on the difference. I need a Nadia sidebar. Yay! Yes! <laughs> right, so just, just going over some of the differences very quickly. So procs, which is short for procedures, are objects. So they're instances of... Wait, I'm sorry. Procs are short for procedures? Yes. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. There you go. Okay. If that's all you learn from this episode, <laughs> that's cool. You're winning. You're winning. Right. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. No, that's fine. So procs are objects, instances of the proc class, and blocks are not objects. So with procs, you can call methods on them and assign them to variables, as we'll see later on. But blocks are more part of the syntax to method calls. So you tend to have a method, just like we saw in the last section, in fact, where we called the draw point and then we passed a block to customize that point. That's how you mm -hmm. use blocks. They're that sort of syntax where you can use it to customize and then call on them later on. And with blocks, therefore, you can only pass one block in a method, like with that ampersand sign like you saw earlier. However, with a proc, you can pass as many as you want in a method. So you can have a method and the parameters are proc1, proc2, proc3. And because you can call methods on a proc, so typically the method call is one that activates a proc, if you've got many procs in a method, you can call specific ones when you want to. So that gives you more flexibility within your method. And so essentially, I'm thinking of blocks as a lightweight temporary version of a proc, maybe analogous to a struct versus a class like we've discussed before. Okay. Mm -hmm. But that might be a helpful way to remember the difference. So a proc, I can name, I can like do more stuff with it. Yeah. It sounds like, right? Like the functionality is basically a block, but I can do stuff with it. But then you said I can call a method on a proc? Yes, because it's an object. So you can if there are methods on it but the, the but the common interface with procs is that is the call method which executes the code that is mm. passed with to the proc so that the like similar to with a with a block when you yield it that the version of yielding a block is proc.call interesting okay and did you happen to look at lambdas at all i started to but then i thought no let me just get block or proc proc down but i think <laughs> if i remember correctly lambdas are procs as well but there's something to do with them focusing on the number validating the number of arguments passed to them and things like that so i have ah. to look into more detail on lambdas and what anyone listening you should definitely look at lambdas too but that i did my specific research on blocks versus prop because you could spend a long time reading different examples mm -hmm. and i had to you know stick within my hour or at least try not to spend too yes. long like you said going over everything yes thank you so much for that nadia sidebar that was super helpful so in this example, we're talking about deleting files, and Avdi is using the method called delete files, and you pass in files, which is an array of files. <laughs> and, and when you do, we're going to iterate over each of 
we're going to iterate over that array and on each file we're going to call file.delete and he says that he understands that file delete can already take a list of files but he's using this example because he's opti and he said so and so he asked the question, what happens when we try to delete a, a file that doesn't exist? And we get an exception. So he calls, you know, delete files, and he passes an array that says it does not exist, and you get the no file or directory does not exist error, which is what we expect. And so he says, in that situation, we might want to do one or two things. We might want to just ignore that error and just keep moving, or we might actually want to hit that error, and it really depends. And so he mentions a time when we probably care about the errors, which most of the time we probably do, but then there are a couple times where we're just cleaning up temporary files, things that we don't care about, we don't want to hit an error every single time we hit a temp file. And so in that, he says that what we can do is pass in an argument called ignore errors. And this feels very similar to an example we had a couple sections ago where we were dealing with a logger, mm -hmm. right? And we had like ignore errors or, you know, ignore log or, or something like that that suppressed the messages from showing up. So the, the standard approach is you want to do all these things like ignore errors or log errors. And so you start to pass in extra optional parameters to your delete files method. And so after you've put ignore errors, sometimes you also want to decide how, whether you log errors or not, the ones that you do get. So You've got ignore errors as an option, and then you might have log log errors as an option, which puts the error message to standard error or if you if if the log error option's set. And so it's starting to get a bit unwieldy. If you had any more options, we've already got two extra optional arguments. If you keep ab adding them, then it's going to become hard to maintain. Now suddenly the edge cases are taking prominence because they're in that method mm -hmm. signature. And so it goes back to that thing we spoke about before with conditionals and how just having a conditional can make the the edge cases have prominence. And this is another version of that where if your method parameters are made up of these optional parameters of how you want to handle different edge cases, then the edge cases become more prominent. But also it doesn't reflect this idea of confident code because you're like, Oh, and there might be this case you want to ignore errors and then you want to log errors and then you want to do this with that with errors. And so this error thing is 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 like in your face. And you're thinking, how many errors am I going to have that I'm worrying about this so much? Yes. And so for all these awesome reasons that you mentioned, and it's so funny because when I first saw it, I my gut said, okay, there's something wrong with this. We're spending too much time on it. But then the fact that Avdi just lists out, I think it ends up being four particular reasons and even when listing them out he says there's so many problematic things about this that it's hard to know where to start so there's probably even more reasons it makes it very very clear for us what to look for and what to be aware of when we're coding and what things might be red flags for for us to say well maybe there's a better solution to do this so i really appreciate that he calls out the reasons that you describe yeah and so one other thing he, that that's interesting to note in out of the errors or the problems that he lists with the code is that now we're logging errors, but there's no way for us to customize these errors. And so there are extra bits of functionality that you'd want to introduce based on these options, but you have no interface for doing that. And this is where Avdi says, right, we're trying to specify policies using data, so using certain bits of information like true or false, but a 
better way, a more confident way is if we focus on behavior. So given certain outcomes, how do we want our code to behave? Yes. And so have you used the concept of policies much in your code or how familiar are you with that? No, I wasn't very familiar with this this lingo at all um so it, it was pretty new this idea of what's the policy that you use in this case or in that case and so yeah this was new to me yeah so when he was talking about policy versus data I got really excited because so you know how when you're a kid you kind of you overhear the adults talking about mortgages and just adulty <laughs> things and you're just kind of like oh one day I'll get to that point where I'll talk about mortgages. That's how I felt <laughs> when I read policies. I was like, oh, this is what the 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 big developer people, they talk. I've, I've heard this in those circles. Now I get to grow up and, and know about policy. So I, I feel very, very adult right now is what I'm saying. Well, I'm very, very happy for you. <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to tell us about policies? Sure. So in this context, when we're talking about policy, initially when we were figuring out what to do with the error, we were using true and false and these symbols to kind of figure out how to handle it. But now what we're going to do is instead of using those data points and instead of setting the the way to handle that error, uh, instead of setting that within the, the delete files, instead we're going to put that in a block that we pass in. In that block, if we want to ignore the errors, if we want to do any type of logging, instead of that being a hard and fast rule inside the delete files method, it's now something that the developer who is using the API can set in a block and then pass it into the delete files method. Yes, that's it. And if we can take that one step further by making it a proc. So what we can do is we can say, take the delete files methods, first arguments files, second argument is a proc named error policy. And the first thing that that method does is it checks if error policy has already been set from the second argument. And if it's not, there's a further block, which will therefore set up a default error policy. That is, if someone's only passed in one argument, there's handling inside the delete files method for the case where an error policy was not set or a proc was not passed. And in the example after gives us, the error is raised. So now we can confidently just say, oh, just call the delete files method. Either we'll pass in our customized error behavior or there's a default. So we just know that the method will behave in a suitable way. And we don't need to worry about toggling all of these different switches on customization, which don't actually give us the flexibility mm -hmm. that we want. Yes, really. exactly. And then he goes on a step further to say, well, what happens if I have different policies? And this is when I go, oh man, I thought <laughs> I thought we got to the end of, of that solution. And so when we talk about having to pass in different policies, he suggests using an options hash. And so here we have options and based on whether we have a key that says on error or a key that says on symlink, we might want to handle those two things differently. And so the problem he's trying to solve is if we want to delete a file, that file name that we pass in might be a file or it might be a symlink. And so we might want to handle those two differently. So for the symlink, we want to find out where the actual file is and delete that actual file, not just the symlink to the file. And in this example, he actually uses .fetch when he's getting the arguments out of the options hash, which is awesome because that's a thing that we've talked about. When we use .fetch, it means that we get better error messages, which is very helpful. And so using an options hash, we can be 
a lot more flexible in the types of air policies that we use, which is very nice. Yes, I thought it was cool using the dot fetch because it's harking on to the chapter we discussed the section we discussed a few weeks ago and he's using the block on dot fetch as well as a oh if this policy is not set then here's the default behavior that you should use and so it's it was nice seeing that that reference to a pattern that we've been introduced to earlier and then Afti leaves us with an example of how you might call delete files with an error policy that logs errors to standard error and a symlink policy which will delete the target of the symlink instead of the symlink. And you see this <laughs> just large <laughs> error call where you've got delete files, you've got an array of the files, and then you've got the two policies specified with the procs. And it's a lot. And I think this is the first time in the book that I remember where we get to the end and there's almost a disappointment in the tone that this is the best we've come up with and it's not great. And so Avdi says, you know, with some programming languages, it's normal to pass lots of lambdas into methods, but in Ruby, we try and be more object oriented, but sometimes, and so it's a bit strange looking at all these procs and lambdas that we, we, you know, we've passed into this code, I think it's procs. Avdi sort of ends by saying, sometimes you will just find this pattern, even though in Ruby we don't quite do that. And it just ends on a, oh, it's not so great, but kind of have to do it in this case. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's it's a good reminder that not everything can be as clean and organized and compact as you want it to be. And I think that so far, all the solutions that we've come up with have been pretty clean and compact. At the end, we go, wow, look how organized this feels. And this one definitely feels very, very heavy. And he ends it by saying, sometimes the best way to handle a tricky decision in method logic is to punt the choice somewhere else, which I thought was very funny. I thought that was a very funny kind of takeaway message for all the, the work that we did with these procs and blocks and such. And so one of the things that we are reminded of is the whole reason or one of the biggest reasons why we did all this work and put it this way is to give more flexibility to the client programmer right that's who we have prioritized in this example when we have all that stuff that we're passing in what that means is that the developer who's using our api has a lot of options they have a lot of different things that they can do so it seems like the one of the costs is just it looking kind of awkward and, and very bulky and, and not so neat and compact. But the benefit is that our client developers who are working with our code and using our stuff, they have more flexibility. So that's the trade-off. And that was a great wrap-up of the end of that section. And this actually doesn't only conclude the section, but it concludes chapter two collecting input <laughs> this yeah. is a very very big chapter yes i remember when we first started we thought let's do a chapter <laughs> an episode that and so cute. we did chapter one which yeah. was very short and then we went away to do chapter two and then we got in touch with with one another and we're like uh about reading all of <laughs> chapter two this week I mean, this is episode 11, yeah. so... <laughs> yeah, there was a lot in there, but we got to a lot of really good stuff. And chapter three is moving away from collecting input and on to delivering results, 
which I'm not sure what that means, but I'm excited to find out next week. And I hope you are excited to find out next week as well. So we want to know, what did you think of all the different tools and approaches that we learned about in chapter two? Is there any particular thing that really caught your eye? Record your 30-second response and send it to us at hello at rubybookclub.com and you might hear yourself on the show. And don't forget to tweet us at rubybookclub and tell us about how you plan to use the takeaways from this episode in your next project. See you next week. Cheerio! Cheerio!